Grace to you in peace and welcome. You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia. My name is Ben Brannan, Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults. And each week it is our hope that from the pulpit, God will twist and mold our words to land upon the listener's ears in a meaningful way that will inspire faith, encourage hope, and cultivate love in action. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here with us. Please subscribe and share, and I pray that through our words, you may grow closer to God. As we turn to God's word, may we turn to God in prayer. Let us pray. Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Each of the four Gospels include a story of Jesus being rejected from his hometown, from his hometown, with each version of the story having their own unique details included or omitted, much like the other stories we find in the Gospels that they share. What you must first come to know is that when all four Gospels include a story, it must mean something. There must be something there. It must be important, and it must be important in the way that the early church was shaped. And the writers must have felt that the inclusion of such stories were vital to the whole of the gospel message. And so continuing in Mark, we look at Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for God's word to the church today. He, Jesus, left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he lay hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two weeks ago, we held a four-night evening VBS vacation Bible school here in the sanctuary. The Reverend Andrew Whaley of Raleigh Court Presbyterian Church led us through an exploration of the leadership roles and leadership styles in ancient Israel. These three roles are that of prophet, priest, and king. Andrew walked us through characteristics of each and how 
They interconnect in how each play a role in the ongoing vitality of life in community. We had a great four nights of discussion and dialogue, and I will tell you that we have some really smart members, smarter than those over at Raleigh Court. (laughs) Those are Andrew's words, not mine, okay? But I would have to agree. We had great discussion about what those leadership styles can say for us today. So for those of you who were there, this may sound very familiar. But for those of you who were not there and have yet to watch the recordings online, which are available on our YouTube page, here is a snippet of what Andrew had to teach us. The three roles, king, priest, and prophet. So the king, the king is concerned with power, carrying out the use of secular power to provide for the apparatus and architecture of justice in the land and to provide order and security for all the people. The kingly role is dynastic, dynastic as in carried on from one generation to the next. And the king is part of the establishment. The priestly role. The priestly role is also dynastic. In ancient Israel, the priests were descendants of Aaron. Thus, the priests are also part of the establishment. They have special uniforms that designate their role. The priests were set apart. They lived away from the rest of the people as they carried out their work in the temple. Priests keep doing and maintaining the same rituals, the same festivals year after year, and they are concerned with Kairos time. This time is the eternal time of God, the seasons, the festivals, helping people lift their vision from the present moment to eternal moment, to a posture of trust in God's provision, provision and care. So the king is dynastic and is part of the establishment. The priest is dynastic and part of the establishment as well. But what we all know and what Israel knew and what God knows is that when you have an establishment that is dynastic, it is prone to corruption. So the final leadership role is needed. The prophet. The prophet is an essential part of Israel's identity as well. Much like the king and the priest, the prophet is needed. The prophet is not dynastic. No one is a prophet because their daddy was a prophet. A prophet is a charismatic leader, one who is raised up and driven by the Spirit. The prophet is not removed from the people like the kings in the palace or the priests that live on their own. The prophet comes from the people with no uniform to set them apart. And unlike the priest who is concerned with Kairos time, the eternal time of God, the prophet is concerned with Kronos time. Kronos time. The here and now moment. Where is God's will being enacted or hindered in the present moment? The prophet is concerned with fidelity to God 
in the physical actions of the nation. So Andrew continued to give us his seven characteristics of the prophet. Prophets don't relish the role. Prophets denounce empty ritual, priestly rituals. Prophets criticize idolatry of the king and of the people. Prophets speak for the voiceless. Prophets are poets and performers, not producers of policy. He said he really tried to get the P alliteration in that one. They are poets and performers, not producers of policy. Prophets are conversant with the kings. That means they have access to the kings. And prophets imagine the impossible. So from this description of the prophet, one might be able to see why being a prophet is so hard and why prophets really didn't win any superlative of most liked in ancient Israel. So when you think of prophets then and now, who comes to your mind? Do they fit all these criteria and all these characteristics? Martin Luther King Jr., Amos, Habakkuk, Otis Moss III, Lecrae, the Dalai Lama, Jeremiah, Elisha, Elijah, Desmond Tutu, Rachel Held Evans. Those are the names that come to my mind and your mind. Prophets teach. Prophets challenge. Prophets push for something more for the people and from the people. Jesus calls himself a prophet in our passage for today. Jesus just finished teaching through parables. He calmed a storm and questioned the disciples' faith exercised the demon from a man, healed a woman from bleeding, and restored Jairus' daughter back to life. After all that, he heads home. Perhaps exhausted from all of this or exhilarated, trying to keep the momentum going. He goes to his hometown. He makes his way into the synagogue and begins to teach. And as Luke's gospel tells us, Jesus opened the scroll to read from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to let the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus then points to himself as the fulfillment of such prophecy. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The people who heard him were amazed. In verse 2, we read of questions of awe, questions of astonishment. Where did this man get these things? They ask, what's, this, what's the wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? The people are genuinely amazed. They saw the power and wisdom that Jesus possesses. 
They saw the miracle he is doing, or at least heard of them. They are witnesses. But then they remembered that he is one of them. And there comes a shift in their response. Wait, they say. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? We know his family. There seems to be nothing special here. Who does this guy think he is? From awe and amazement to questioning and disdain, they saw, they speculated, and then they stumbled. The people couldn't understand that one of their own would be able to do such great things. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing special is born of us, they think. From their perspective, as one from the people, Jesus certainly isn't anything special. They know him and his family. To the people in his hometown of Nazareth, he's just the illegitimate son of Mary. We've all heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea that the more we know of something or someone, the more we will find fault in that thing and begin to lose respect. Jesus is teaching and healing, and they are amazed. But then they recalled what they knew about him and where he was from. And this amazement turned to scornful contempt. It says in verse 3, they took offense at him. They were offended by who he said he was. The prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. I am here. They were offended by who he claimed to be. They took offense at him because they couldn't believe all of this to be true. Their familiarity with Jesus and his commonness as one of them caused them to take offense and stumble, making it difficult for them to believe he was a great teacher, a powerful healer, much less the prophetic fulfillment and Messiah. And we have seen this in contemporary prophetic voices like the ones I mentioned earlier, and perhaps the ones you were thinking about. One in particular comes to my mind, especially as we read of Jesus' hometown rejection. Now, some of you may not refer to this guy as a prophet, but remember, prophets speak for the voiceless. They give voice to the voiceless. They are poets and performers. And in the words of Walter Brueggemann, prophets criticize and energize. So the contemporary prophet I am referring to is the great 1990s artist Tupac Shakur. Tupac was the son of two Black Panthers, and he was an outspoken voice for social change. His love of poetry came before his fame for music. He attended the Baltimore School of Arts, and many of his poems and songs point to the harsh conditions he and many in the black community were raised in, the discrimination the black community endures, and the violence and injustice the black community faces from each other 
and from the system. I will mention, however, not all of his songs and poems were meant to incite a call for equality. Some are a bit demeaning and derogatory. But if you have not heard his song, Changes, I recommend it. But that's not the song I'm thinking about. The song and poem that comes to my mind speaks to what Jesus endured that day in his hometown. It is his album entitled track, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. This song is a poetic presentation. It actually started as a poem, but it's a poetic presentation of the life struggles that the black community had to live through and the miracle that was his escape. Tupac says, You try and plant something in concrete. If it grows and the rose petals have scratches, you're not going to say, Look at all those scratches on the rose that grew from concrete. He said, No. You're going to say, Wow. A rose grew from concrete. He says, it's the same thing with me, with a lot of us. I grew out of all this. Don't say he did this. Instead, say, wow, he grew out of that? He came out of that? You see, Tupac had hope, a hope that we as a community, as a nation, would see each other, see beyond the color of our skin, see beyond the places that we lived, beyond the concrete that holds us back. To see each person as we truly are, as a rose that we truly are. We've all grown from some sort of concrete in our lives. We have encountered resistance, pushback, setbacks, and even failures. Whether it's a diagnosis that has changed our lives forever or the labels placed on us from our past mistakes or the idea that we cannot amount to anything, only living in the shadow of expectation and of our environment. We all have endured the hard places of life that seem to forever keep us down in our own way. And for some, it may even be the rejection from our family. And yet, we all have scratches on our petals. Some are deep. Some are still healing. But I am here to remind you that you are a rose. No matter the concrete you had to endure, the concrete you are currently facing, you are a rose. You are blooming despite your brokenness. You are beautiful in your brokenness. And by the grace of God, you are beloved as a bruised and broken rose. The townspeople of Nazareth couldn't get past their contempt to see the joy that Jesus embodied. Jesus' own people saw him as a threat to their claim of power in this world. Yet Jesus possessed a different kind of power. A power that is not limited in its capacity. 
Jesus possessed the power of love and compassion, which when given, it grows. When shared, it returns. And when seen, is imitated. When the power of love and compassion of Jesus Christ are made known in this world, that power multiplies. And this power still healed that day. Christ still laid his hands on those hurting, still offered peace and love and mercy in his hometown in the face of that rejection. He still created a space, an invitation to believe and follow. The townspeople looked at Jesus as a rose that grew from concrete. Who does he think he is? He was born of us. He grew up here with us. Nobody amounts to anything from here. Well, in response to that, Tupac would say, you wouldn't ask why the rose that grew from concrete had damaged petals. On the contrary, we would celebrate its tenacity and we would love its will to reach the sun. May it be so. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.